0: The OCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed
1: on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly.
2: Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you very much for tuning into the program. It's Friday, June the 10th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams. He's producing this. Come on with an edition of Open Line. So if you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial to get in the queue to talk about whatever you want to talk about, 273-5211, or elsewhere, it's toll-free, long distance, 1-888-59DVOCM, which is 86. 26 all right so the two-time defending stanley cup champions tampa bay will not be outdone by the rangers down to nothing in the series roar back to now lead the series 3-2 after a 3-1 victory last night so we're just that much closer to getting to watch our very own alex Lehook and the colorado avalanche take on the eventual winner of that series i'm going to throw this out to one more time is look i don't mind dropping a few bob on a game you know bet with, uh, with one of my buddies But it's becoming infuriating watching sports, and it is just dominated with advertisements for betting opportunities right throughout the entirety of the game. Look, I know for some people it might be that quote-unquote trigger because folks do indeed struggle with gambling, but it is non-stop. I don't know if you want to talk about that, but we can do exactly that. All right, and here comes the weekend. Hopefully it's a little nicer weather than we're experiencing today here in the metro region. One of the keys for the weekend, for years for me, was to enjoy a nice, hefty, broadsheet broad newspaper. Right? Nothing like snapping the newspaper in your hands. It's one thing to read online, which I do quite often, my go googly eye doing it. But the newspaper business has certainly suffered, certainly in the printing for home delivery and to buy it off the newsstands or what have you. The Chicago Tribune, the sixth largest distributed paper in the United States of America, was first published today in history, 1847, and still going strong. Not so many newspapers can say the same thing because we know the industry has changed. And, you know, people complain about the paywall. You'll see something advertised or, pardon me, promoted on uh, social media. Then you go to click the article that's behind the paywall. A lot of people complain about it. But, of course, you got to pay for journalism too, right? So with the advertising dollars dominated by some of the big digital online, whether it be the Googles or the Facebooks of the world, and they should not be able to swallow up that entire ecosystem, so now a bit of paywall stuff, people complain about it but you've got to pay for what you get people expect stuff for free, but there's no free lunch okay, and so I can only read the newspaper in English it was today in history that Web 2.0 became the one millionth word to enter the English language back in 2009 you know, people talk about my god, it must be so difficult to learn Chinese or Japanese or Russian or what have you some of the Romance languages seem to be a little bit more manageable to learn but I think the world is in agreement. The most difficult language to learn is English, to be proficient in English. Just all of the little quirks inside of our, well, my mother tongue is just extraordinary. But with over a million words in the English language, no wonder it's difficult to learn and to speak. All right. Come from away. Of course, Broadway's Runaway Smash hit. It. It uh, debuted in March 2017 on the Great White Way. And they're going to be shutting it down come October the 2nd. So had a pretty great run, to say the very least. And you know the premise and the story behind the Broadway musical Come From Away. So October 2nd is going to be its last production. That'll represent 1,670 shows on Broadway. Nominated for seven Tonys, won one for Best Direction. Also took on three Drama Desk Awards, including Best Musical. There's a film version available on Apple TV. But that, you have to believe that Come From Away has gone a long way to introducing this province to people far and wide. They've taken to the stage in Europe and in Australia and in China. Actually, the British production won four Oliver Stage Awards back in 2019. The show came back to this province in 2019 as well, of course. But Come From Away, congratulations to all involved. We had some locals who were parts of the full time cast on Broadway. So, congratulations on the run. Not quite over yet, but October 2nd will be the last one. And I think that probably has been a boon to the tourism business here in the province. And in the tourism world, the bottlenecks at the major airports, especially Toronto's Pearson, there's government is quick to blame it on staffing shortages, what have you. But the voices are getting louder and louder, asking for some of the restrictions to be lifted, whether it be random testing and, yes, the requirement for vaccines. So, you know, with Omicron, it really has changed. Unfortunately for people who have been vaccinated, including me, that protection wanes. And so the ability to uh, contract the virus and spread the virus, although mitigated, and we know the issues surrounding severe illness and hospitalizations and death, okay. But the government says they're going to extend the mandate till at least the end of the month. If you listen to even Dr. Theresa Tam, who's been really under fire, under siege throughout the pandemic, Her words are pretty clear that she sees this coming to an end, too, up to the ministers, of course, in the various departments, and I guess ultimately in the prime minister's office. But many people, I'm probably in the minority here, but there is a legitimate question to be asked as to why and what's actually being achieved by these particular mandates. We know in this province, June 1st, the the province dropped the vaccine mandate for public sector workers. So I, I get it. You know, some people are still worried. And COVID is out there. We know it to be true. I don't ever want to speak in terms of fear, just awareness and mindfulness. But the mandate, I think, has an absolutely fair question to be asked if you want to take it on today. Even though the vaccine has been a very frustrating topic to discuss, happy to do it because that's just nature of the beast. All right. So, we know, based on comments coming from the Federal Environment Minister, Stephen Gibo, and here's what he said. It would be very difficult for a new project to pass the bar. This is on the heels of the Beta Nord project being released from its environmental review, and we're waiting to see what Equinor will do. They say they're proceeding full speed, and it's unlikely that they won't go ahead and sanction this project, given what they know about the amount of recoverable oil and the fact they say their business model is based on break-even at $35 a barrel, and we are in the 120s. So, we'll see what becomes of it. Now, like everything else in this world, there's going to be two distinctly different voices here. There will be the folks who focus on the economic upside of the oil and gas industry and folks, of course, talking about greenhouse gas emissions and what many of you might not consider climate change a crisis, but it absolutely, of course, is. If you listen to OilCo CEO Jim Keating, he's really quite bullish. So they're talking about maybe three or four major developments in the next decade, similar to the size and scope of Beta Nord. Equinor says there's about 500,000 barrels. The oil companies always underestimate. So if you talk to people inside the uh, industry itself, they're thinking, that there's a billion barrels or more out of the Beta Nord project. So Mr. Keating says inside, that's only one of the 20 prospects that were identified during the government-funded seismic program. Many of them have billion-barrel-plus potential. Okay, so we can take it on, and we can talk about it. You know, but therein lies some of the, the rub here. Is that you know, ref- a specific reference to the seismic program, There is well understood research and documentation about what seismic means, not only for the identification of hydrocarbons, but also what it means to marine wildlife and what the implications would be for the fishery. And there's where there's been an extraordinarily tricky balancing act that has not yet been achieved with some of the marine protected areas. Oil exploration can continue, even though there's well understood what seismic means for marine mammals marine wildlife. So like the northeast slope, I think some sixty four thousand kilometers, a protected area. Oil business in, fishery out, even though the gear would not be disrupting the seafloor and the coral and the sponges and the like. So You know, again, I'm pretty happy that I don't have to make any of these decisions because there's no winning. You know, one decision leaning towards oil will please some or many, and the other will please some or many, depending on who you are, where you are, and what you think about the industry. But Mr. Keating, pretty bullish on it. One of the one such uh, finds is Blue Jacket. Apparently, that's the big one that may indeed be a whopping big discovery. Anyway, you want to talk about it? Let's go. And things like that, you know, it's remarkable. The approval of Bay de Nord, and this has happened in the past, whether it be with Hibernia and or Hebron, it brings upon a little bit more of financial and fiscal optimism. It always kind of confused me as to why that was so widespread, given the fact that not everyone benefits directly. Of course, the province collecting royalties through the industry and the expanded tax base for employees and corporate tax levels, I get that. But it doesn't directly impact many of us right in our pocket, our bi-weekly checks, for instance. So while it will be an economic boon for the province, for provincial government coffers, if any of these things that Mr. Keating foresees comes to pass, but a lot of people are being left behind. I mean, it's unbelievable. The gap between the rich and the poor is wider than it's ever been. Ever. The amount of wealth accumulated at the very top is obscene. The world has added a billionaire every single day of the pandemic. Every single day, at least one new billionaire Then you look at some of the reports, whether it be from uh, Food Bank Canada and otherwise, and even anecdotally, one in five Canadians are going hungry. How can that possibly be? One in four Canadians simply say they're eating less so that they can pay their bills. You know, so while there's gonna be great news at the top level, there's still major concerns for everybody else, and this even includes the upper middle class, whatever that is. We know that politicians will pander to the middle class because that's the big swath of the general population but the struggle is mighty. So, you know, people talk about progressive taxation and tax on the super wealthy and what have you. It's all fine and dandy, but we are all painfully aware that government can do what they want inside of taxation. It's then the uh, consequential decisions that they make with any bit of money coming in the door. So again, in this country, we don't necessarily have a problem with how much money governments have. We have a distinct problem with distribution and how the money is spent and how policies are created and the political motivation for policies as opposed to the uh, the concept of greater good and pulling all along with whatever upside might be happening in one industry or another. It's not happening for all and we know it to be true. Everything you look at and you touch these days, out of control. So if you have had to change your purchasing habits like many of us have, you know, people are turning to things that they might not have normally eaten in the past. Those ready-to-eat noodles. You put on the kettle and you pour the hot water in these noodle packs and people are using that as a meal. You know, it's no longer a stopgap measure for a college dorm room. It's on the supper table. Things like oatmeal. Some things that you might, might not have eaten since you were a child now might become staples. So if you have some ideas to share... You know, whether it be with frozen fruits and vegetables, which I think are becoming more and more popular as time goes by, let's talk about it. So if you have helpful advice or tips, and you know, whether it be how you use the flyers or what have you, I know that it might be time consuming, but boy, people are trying to stretch the the dollar as far as they possibly can. I guess many people out there listening would always have done this and conducted their own shopping habits and their own budgets like this all the time, but now I think you can add thousands more families to the fold of trying to figure out how to approach that issue. Okay, let's keep going. I heard Bramador in the VOCM news say there's another flight of Ukrainian refugees going to be arriving in the province soon. But upon arrival, and the government's trying to help them get a driver's license here in Newfoundland and Labrador, but then you have to get insurance. Now, People make the argument insurance is too expensive as some sort of excuse as to why they don't have insurance, but it's not just Ukrainian refugees. It's newcomers to the country and newcomers to this province specifically. They're getting quotes for insurance. You know, I hear one number: five thousand five hundred ninety dollars or ninety-two dollars per year. Another one: eight thousand two hundred eighty-eight dollars per year. Average in this province in 2020 was twelve hundred dollars. So. You know, there's no direction coming from the government or the public utilities board for these types of premiums to be quoted. Now, for the insurance industry, they do need to know who you are and your driving record. It is sometimes extremely difficult to get your drivers abstract from your home country you know, to describe yourself as a safe or a low-risk driver, or the other side of it, you might be a very high-risk driver. So apparently it falls off a little bit after 90 days, falls off a little bit more than after a year. But then with all of the things that we're all trying to grapple with, and if you're a newcomer trying to get a home, a rental, so the vacancy rate in St. John's, for instance, is 3.1%. That's down from 7.5% this time last year. So Insurance and how you're trying to divvy up whatever bit of monies you brought with you or any sort of support you get, boy, $8,200 a year insurance premiums. And this person may have an absolutely clean abstract. So if you want to take that on, let's do it. Okay. So we all know the story of the RCMP entering a home in Mount Moriah and eventually waking up an 11-year-old girl with a flashlight in her eyes. And you know the ins and outs if you've been listening to or watching the news or reading the news. You know, uh, Colin called yesterday and said that, you know, what happens with some of these no-knocks? The RCMP say they repeatedly knocked around a doorbell, which the family says they don't have a doorbell. You know the deal. But then it was, you know, what if worst-case scenario comes up, and when you're scared and you think you're at risk, and then what happens if there's some sort of tragedy? And then people went on to tell me repeatedly that, you know, that's so unlikely, you know, we're watching too much television or watching too much American news or what have you. But it can happen. And this is where the importance of real, the critically important training required to avoid such incidents. You know, someone said, well, it's not going to happen like that. People don't behave like that. Well, someone sent me a news story. There was a fellow named Basil Parasiris in Laval, Quebec. He was in his home. The police with a battering ram came in. The end result was the homeowner shot one of the police officers dead. Did not know it was a police officer until the man was on the floor. He was acquitted. Uh, A self-defense argument is that he thought he was in fear for his life. He didn't know who was entering his home. It was about a a search for drugs. Now, lo and behold, the man did indeed have a variety of drugs, 17 cell phones and pages in the house. So maybe he was indeed doing what the police thought he was doing. He had four firearms in the house. Only one was registered. But caught off guard and thought he was uh, in jeopardy. To risk life and limb, he thought his family may be killed. He shot and killed a cop and was acquitted of it. So that's where the importance of these types of stories, it's not just the trauma experienced by the family, and especially the young girl, it's this can be the outcome. So someone told me it never happens, but someone sent me a story that says it absolutely does happen. All right, quick one. How are we doing on the phone there, Dave? (laughs) All right. So the never-ending saga of the Elections NL report. This really does feel like a self-inflicted wound by the government. You know, it was on the Speaker's desk, apparently. We don't even know how long, two or three months. And then appeared on the Premier's desk, uh, quarter to five this Monday afternoon. But, you know, again, self-inflicted. Now we've arrived at a place, and you can rightfully tell me there are bigger fish to fry. There are more important issues going on, but we're also talking about the lives of 21 individuals who were part of the investigation so this needs to be concluded even just for them but again it's emblematic of how government in a quest to keep some things from our beady little curious eyes now this is the result so the premier and minister of justice public safety john hogan said that they were going to send it to the privacy commissioner michael harvey to scrub it but lo and behold he didn't know that was coming now, Minister Hogan says there was no direction given to Michael Harvey, but Michael Harvey says, you know, he wasn't consulted, found out about it at the same time we all did, and he doesn't see that to be his role. So, again, all of these things that government tries to do, look, I don't know how many documents should absolutely be revealed, publicly disclosed in full, sans redactions, but this one is really something else. So, uh, Mr. Harvey, you know, his role is so important and he 's refusing now to evaluate this particular document you know he doesn 't want to be part of decision making processes as opposed to his independent offering of you know the ability to review now there 's been a privacy complaint uh, delivered to his office, maybe one of the other rationales that 's why Mr. Harvey is not going to review this particular report, but maybe just maybe we can do a better job, through, whether it be through legislation and or Better decision-making so these things don't happen. And here we are, 10th of June. Still no firm understanding about the dates for the recreational food fishery. It's coming to the 11th hour. Most recent update from the, the department? They're developing or creating a special come-home-year food fishery. What? Anyway, people would like to know. I get peppered about that all the time. All right, we're on Twitter. or are BOSM Openline. Follow us there. Email address is openline.bosm.com. Let's get to tune on the go. Oh, to set this up. Uh, a listener, I have no idea who this person is, dropped off a collection of commemorative coins representing some star hockey players. It's lovely. They're cool. And I really enjoyed looking at them yesterday afternoon. But also a couple of notes. You know, with reference to his mother dying and, you know, he's trying to give away some of these things because he doesn't have any more family to leave them to. And he decided to give me one of these coin collections. I just I'm staggered. Very kind notes. And, you know, he, he also said that, you know, maybe, just maybe, we can play some Elvis in a Casey Kasem type of long-distance re- long request. Yeah, we're going to do it. So thank you to you, whoever you are, for the kind gesture and the very kind gift. Back in 1980, or 1954, the king of rock and roll, Elvis Presley, that's all right, Mama when we come back we're speaking with you welcome back to the program well Jim Flood has 40 years of experience in mixed martial arts he's teaming up with his pal Michael Starks he's a firefighter at St. John's Regional Fire Department they're opening up a martial arts dojo this one a little bit different than the ones you may have experienced in the past this is for the neurodiverse let's go to line number 3 good morning Jim Flood you're on the Whoa. air Hi, thank you very much. Happy to have you on the show, sir. I think this is really interesting. One of my boys participated in martial arts, and the dojo was a chaotic and very noisy and excited kind of crew and room. You're trying to do it a little bit different to attend to a certain segment of society that needs some sensory controls. Tell me what you're up to.
1: Well, we've uh, got a great program, right, and it came through experience. Like you say, a dojo can be very chaotic and... And it can be very confusing for somebody that has sensory issues. So we've developed a program where we really tailor the program to the individual involved, right? And we make sure that we cater to their needs and give them the best environment possible that they can develop into their best self, well, we
2: know like in schools, a student who might be on the spectrum may need a little break from the classroom, the lights and the noise and what have you, and gets to spend some time alone, possibly in the library or some setting like that. How can you translate the dojo that I'm familiar with to accommodating sensory issues? Because you're still going to have to, uh, still going to, have to teach them, whether it be the elbow, catter, or what have you, and there's going to be a lot of movement and noise, so just paint a picture for us how this will look and feel different.
1: Well, what we do is, number one, all of our instructors have to be neuro-certified instructors. So they've got to know how to adapt to the, the student, how to understand what they're going through, right? Um, we, it's very important that we, the so-called normal society, adjust our teaching techniques, to the neurodiverse community and understand the issues they're going through. So we make accommodations. So if somebody is sensitive to the light, we can dim the lights. If somebody is sensitive to the noise, we can reduce the noise. Now, it's not always going to be... We're not going to have that ability in every class. So there are issues are times where we maybe have to do it more in a private-type setting and get that person accommodated and get them used to that whole classroom environment. It's very important with this community that we educate them, we let them know what to expect and let them know that it's okay to disengage from the class, take a break. We also have, especially in our St. John's School, we've got a sensory room where it's, um, we can dim the lights, we can reduce the noise, right? We can take them out of that environment and they can get um, desensitized, they can calm down, right? And when they're able to join the class again, they're welcome to come back into the class
2: for many people who have been involved in martial arts they will talk about some of the benefits for the individual taking the classes whether it be for self-control self-defense physical fitness you know the ability to learn and translate with the teacher is uh, the sensei is uh, delivering regarding one cat or another or the combat portions of some of the competitions will the upside for these students be different then i don't know how to say it you know the, for jack daly when he went and learned some martial arts so do you think there's a distinct upside for folks who are neuro neurodiverse in taking martial arts
1: 100% there's there's a massive uh, upside because some of these and, and it's really sad it's one of the reasons that i i wanted to develop this program it's amazing in today's society a lot of these kids and adults they're excluded from taking part in a martial arts school or an after-school program. And it, it it was one of my motivating factors of getting the program started is they would be excluded from social events because they're not normal. They're not behaving the way that normal society expects. They express themselves maybe differently or it takes them a little bit longer to... Uh, Understand what we want in normal society. So again, it's adjusting our teaching methods, our modes of communication, and understanding theirs and trying to make it. Um, so it works for both segments of the society.
2: You know, we can talk about flexibility and physical fitness or what have you, but there's also a real mental component to the martial arts. Whether it be commitment to learn, whether it be mental stamina, describe how the martial arts deal with the mental aspect of martial arts as opposed to simply the flexibility and you know the full body workout that you get
1: well I, I and again one one of the latest studies out there is it explains how your physical exercising working your body isn't just for your body it's very much for your mind as much for your mind as it is for your 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 body right so the the fact if martial arts classes were working on strength balance um. Speed, All of these aspects, but working it in conjunction with the mind, it really gives that all around um, workout. So we're, we're working our body and our mind. But once we get somebody to believe in themselves, once we give somebody that confidence that they can achieve, be it a kata or be it a basic move, that confidence translates to the rest of their life so if we can get them feeling good about themselves understanding that they can do whatever they they put their mind to right and that's a body mind aspect of what we do their spirit rises and they're now we've given them that confidence that they can go after anything in life whether it's better grades or whether it's greater socialization building friendships that's the, the, the real benefit of this, that we're working body, mind, and spirit for uh, these people that are being, I hate to say it, excluded from a lot of today's recreational events, social events, and educational events, right? I think it's the stigma that we as normal society puts on them that's holding them back. So that whole social integration part plays a huge aspect for everyone involved.
2: Yeah, excluded or simply isolated and I'll do this on your behalf. When Jim says normal you, Jim, and I, and I think most people we struggle for whatever word might be generally accepted, but everyone knows what Jim's meaning, so please don't come after him or me for using normal because it's not an intentional slight on anybody. I'm just saying that on your behalf, Jim, because I get hammered with that all the time. Okay, yes, and it's it's, it's difficult to come up with that? whatever appropriate word. And I'm not, I'm not lecturing you, Jim. I'm actually trying to get have your back here. Okay. Yeah, thank you. Um, are your programs for both youth and adults?
1: One hundred percent. We we we've, we've got youth from six years and up, right? And the only reason we we limit it to that is a lot of times people aren't diagnosed or they haven't they haven't had the diagnosis at under those ages, and it's really useful for the instructors to have that background so we can tailor the program to the individual involved, and it goes all the way up to i'm gonna say myself i am 57 years old right and i'm at that point where you're you're looking at that pre-dementia pre-alzheimer's we're having those senior moments where we're like ah why can't i get that now is it normal or is it something that i have to work on
2: last one what's coming up this weekend and where is your dojo or do you have a physical space secured
1: Oh, we have a physical space secured. It's 585 Torbay Road, and it's at Alex Foley's Academy of Martial Arts. And it is a fantastic facility that's easily accessible. And we're there from 445 to 545 doing demonstrations and giving any information, answering questions for anyone in attendance.
2: Appreciate your time this morning, Jim. Uh, Good luck with this terrific initiative.
1: And I really appreciate you giving us this opportunity. Thank you very much. I appreciate it.
2: You're welcome, Jim. Stay in touch. You're welcome. All right. Bye-bye. You really did see, like even some of the children that were in uh, Jack's class, you could see they were different insofar as their self-confidence went, as they learned more and more and went to more and more classes. There's a big upside to martial arts, and it's not about fighting. You know, the general concept behind martial arts is defense right so anyway that sounds like a program that Jim Flood and Michael Starks are offering let's take a break when we come back we're going to talk about the fact that there's been a school trip canceled left parents on the hook I, I imagine that means financially and Ben Sparks our annual conversation about the Morrison scholarship don't go away
1: weekdays on VOCM it's open line with your host Patty Daly join the conversation each morning from 9 a.m. to noon on your VOCM
3: we get people talking
2: welcome to the show let's go line number four good morning caller are you on the air
3: Hi, good morning, how are you? That's about bad, thanks, how about you? Good, thank you. Uh, first time caller, and uh, the reason I'm calling in today is uh, two days ago, a bunch of students who were attending a summer program, a French program in Quebec, received notification that the Department of Education was retracting their approval, um, reducing the number of students from 100, 150 down to 50 to attend this summer program, citing that... Um, that the campus in Quebec couldn't find quote-unquote quality staff to uh, run the program so they took all of the names put them back into I guess their system and pulled out 50 new names and now we're sitting here waiting to see if our children are going to be attending um, like I said, there's two camps. The first one was leaving for June 25th and the second one was July 21st. So the bursary from the government covered all of the expenses for the children in Quebec. Um, what the parents were on the hook for was airfare, spending money and to get their, you know, to bring list. So, um, you know, many of the parents, myself included, waited, to, like we were told, to uh, that we got our acceptance letters, booked airfare, um, you know, waited for our authorization to do anything like that, which is what we did. Got these random letters, like saying that everything is canceled. Um, wait to hear if you're going to go. And now we're stuck with, you know, a lot of money invested into a program that our kids are probably not going to attend. So I just wanted to let people know about
2: this. Okay, so yeah. just so I have, I've got this straight, you already have purchased airline tickets and not knowing yeah. even if your child has a spot?
3: No, no, well, originally when we purchased the tickets, we had an authorization that my child had a spot. So we, we received, congratulations, you are, you've been selected to go. Uh, a couple of weeks after we got the letter, parents sat down, we booked our children, so they were going on together on the flight. So cause these kids are grade nine students, um, so we wanted them to travel like in groups, right? <laughs> so we booked the flights based on what we were told once we got our acceptance letters two days ago they retracted all of the acceptance letters citing that you know they didn't have enough staff and that they were going to run the program but at a reduced capacity so now instead of hundred and fifty children going they're sending fifty so they did a random draw for fifty names
2: in in some school trips in the past, and this story has happened several times, and especially at the beginning of the pandemic, when a school Mm -hmm. trip is brought to bear, there would be a third party involved. And so the airline tickets being purchased and what have you, but that other group isn't the school. And consequently, some parents were having to fight with that company to try to get their money back for trips that have been canceled through no fault of their own. So is there a third party doing this as well?
3: No. Okay, so this this straight relationship between
2: you and the camp, okay.
3: This is straight from uh, the applications came from the Department of Education. Got it. Um, They they went back to the Department of Education, and, you know, through my understanding, it's some sort of program they have in place with, I guess, the government of Quebec um, invited them to attend. The government of Newfoundland are the ones providing the bursaries for these students to attend. Um, You know, I I know it's on us what kind of airfare we picked, and when I booked the airfare, I booked... You know, there's different classes of airfare. I booked one that is non-refundable, but you'd get a credit back. But my thought when I was booking this is that when my daughter goes, if she doesn't go for some reason like COVID or we had a death in the family or something like that, that's on me. And I totally accept that responsibility. Nowhere can I find in the fine print was I under the impression that they could retract this bursary at any time. And in their letter, they're stating that this is unprecedented. They've never run into this before. And now we're the ones left holding the bag like my airfare was over a thousand dollars to send her up and back and now I'm out a thousand dollars. I will eventually get some sort of credit from from the airline. But, I mean, that's only good if you're planning on traveling. And, quite frankly, in this economy, I'm not planning on traveling. So, what's that, that $1,000 is flushed down the toilet. And there's other expenses, of course, that were out. Like, the, you know, there was little things on the list that we had to buy specifically for this trip that we've been chucking away at. And now, what do I need that for? And and the government is just saying, you, you had to buy airfare. So... You know, and I feel like the lady that I was speaking to at the department, God love her, she tried her best. You know, she's just a worker bee doing the best she can. But somebody higher up needs to look at this and say, this is unprecedented. You know, we shouldn't be leaving these parents high and dry for the cost of this and, and doing something to help us with this.
2: Or at least paint the picture where there's a risk as opposed to, come on up to jolly Quebec, and all of a sudden things get disrupted. So, and even with the travel voucher, that will have an expiry date as well, just like the travel voucher I got when we canceled our trips back in 2020. Okay. So what are they saying for the possibility for people like yourself if your child does not make it to the lucky 50 that gets selected? Is there any protections coming at all? Are they giving you any information or every man and woman for themselves?
3: it's no information all I got was a letter and they just basically said they encouraged all the students who were originally selected for the bursary to reapply next year um- And we will consider your experience this year as part of the selection process for next year. So that that was it.
2: Yeah, not good enough. Uh, I really appreciate the time. Hopefully, you know, but even if you're one of the lucky ones, someone else won't be as lucky. So this is going to, you know, there's going to be 100 families that are going to be disappointed, not only with the inability to have the trip, but the cash. So I completely understand. Been there. Yeah.
3: No, I, I appreciate your time and for helping me to get this out there. I think people need to know what's going on and it needs to hit some ears that can make better decisions on this. So I appreciate your help and your time.
2: I appreciate yours. Good luck.
3: Thank you. You're Bye-bye. welcome.
2: Take care. Bye bye. Yeah, that stuff is extraordinarily frustrating, isn't it? We had one it was with a, a sporting event and it got cancelled pretty late in the day. And man, the rackets to try to recover some monies was pfft it was frustrating to say the least okay uh, appreciate your patience there Ben when we come back we're going to talk about the Morrison scholarship so if you are a grade 12 student and or the parents or caregivers of a a grade 12 student stay tuned for this one don't go away welcome back let's go to line number one good morning Ben Sparks you're on the air good morning Patty thanks so much for having me on again happy to have you on it's our annual chat about the Morrison scholarship before we get into the scholarship its value and who it's targeted towards tell us about Kate Morrison
4: Oh, geez, Patty, you're going to make me choke up here. Um, uh, Kate was my mom. Uh, we actually were neighbors with you, Patty, uh, for a number of years. Mm-hmm um she was a lawyer um i mean i'm obviously biased but uh, all-around good person um and was interested uh in making a difference in her community um wherever that was um she wasn't didn't go the uh the the posh uh, big big tower lawyer route was more a legal aid lawyer uh in in the in the thick of it trying to uh trying to help people and uh yeah so the scholarship is, is named after her and and uh you know, we're trying to uh, to do our best to to carry on a little bit of, of her legacy, but also to uh, to inspire uh, other folks to get involved in their communities and and um, uh, give give back and 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 make something positive out of
2: it. So, who is the Morrison Scholarship uh, directed towards? Who would it be eligible for?
4: Um so anybody who's uh, in grade 12 uh, right now or who is going to a post-secondary uh, institution somewhere in Canada um, from Newfoundland this year so I, I put that caveat there if you took a gap year or if you're been out of school for a little while but you're going back to uh, to college or university uh, this applies to you as well um, and it's it, it's more or less for for students who are studying um, in a related field of uh, politics political science um, public policy um, you know some, something like that but if you can make an argument that your engineering degree or your biochemistry degree is, is going to have a tangible impact on your community and and you know that's what you want to do for your career but you want to make a, a difference uh, uh, in your community uh, you know on the side or, or as, as as another part of your your career um, we're certainly open to that so it's pretty broad uh, anybody anybody who's interested or, or curious should apply that's what I would tell you
2: yeah because just about any discipline uh, studied in post-secondary can indeed have a lens focus on social justice or social inequality or inequity so yeah please do if you're a grade 12 student and you have any keen interest in bettering your community make sure you just take the opportunity to fill out the application form for the Morrison scholarship because casting your net pretty wide is always a good idea when you're trying to help uh, support your tuition and other costs associated with the university okay so I'm sorry go ahead no, I was gonna. I'm just gonna say, Patty. In terms of casting a wide net,
4: I was listening to your preamble, and you're talking about food insecurity, inflation, oil and gas projects, Ukrainian refugees, uh, elections, um, and all those things. What they have in common is a need for people to be educated a little bit about how their government and their society work, and that's why that's what the scholarship hopes to do is to get young people interested in that. Because I think we do a, a good job focusing on math and science, and not such a good job on. Uh, you know, the things that actually affect all of us, which is uh, our, our government and, and um, the society that we've built.
2: Politics can be overwhelming and it can be very frustrating and disappointing, but everything that we touch is as a result of some government policy or another. So, whether it be civics in high school and understanding what different levels of government do, what they're in charge of, what the responsibilities are, do you think? Now, millennials for the first time ever are the largest voting segment in the country. What do you think we're doing? How do you think we're doing in opening the eyes of our youth to what politics means without overwhelming them with the toxic nature of, bi- of a, you know, hyper-partisanship or what have you? Because it is important. You don't have to, every single day, you know, delve deep into every political issue, but an awareness can go a long way to even f- uh, you know, molding your own decisions and your own thoughts on how the community operates and where the gaps are and the, pl- the politicians who maybe ignore these gaps.
4: Yeah, I mean, I I would actually just challenge your listeners to think back to what they received in terms of civic education right like everybody's done their multiplication tables you know you do your your calculus or your algebra your geometry some some science but how much time was actually spent you know whether you were in high school or or junior high school or uh, in your continuing education or just in your life I mean how much time was actually dedicated to learning about this stuff even though we all are affected by it we all pay taxes we all avail of of services Um, but we do a really bad job not just provincially you know across the, the country and I would argue perhaps in the western democratic you know countries these days um folks are starting to lose um that connection uh, and and that understanding of, of where we're, where we're at and and the, the society the democratic society that we live in um taking it back down to you know a smaller a smaller level i think y- young people in particular are aware of the issues. Uh, i mean whether it's climate change or um uh, the economy or, or the cost of living, what what have you. I mean, young people have more access to information than ever before. Um, but it, as you say, it is it is really overwhelming. And you get, you know, people who are really anxious and they feel powerless to change things because the government structures, the previous generations, the, the folks in charge, you know, um, uh, it, it's all so overwhelming and, and large and, th- and they're not sure how they can make a difference, but I would argue and I would tell young people in particular that you can make a difference um, and it's whether it's big or small, you know, start small and go from there, uh, you can make a difference and it's not just for young people either. I mean, if you're a sure. middle aged person or, or even a senior. I mean, you can make a difference in your community. You just have to get involved, and uh, that doesn't mean necessarily in elections or in politics. But uh, go to a you know town council meeting, listen to Open Line. This is a, an amazing show. There's nothing like it anywhere else, uh, where people come in and actually you know discuss issues. Um, so, so I would just encourage everybody to to do your part, and if everybody does that, we'll be in a better
2: place. Ben, where do people go for an application, and what's the value of the scholarship? Yeah, so this year,
4: we bumped it up to $3,000. So you get half of that uh, in September before you start uh, your first term at at university or college, and then you get the other half uh, next December. Um, And you go to MorrisonScholarship.ca. You can learn all about the application process. You apply right there online. And if you have any issues uh, with your application, you can send us an email or uh, direct message us on social media. Uh, We're on the Twitters, Facebook, uh, Instagram as well. And we'd really love if everyone would just help us spread the word. If you are a student or if you know somebody who is uh, a student who might be interested, uh, if you're a teacher, uh, please uh, feel free to share uh, as widely as as possible and and make sure that we uh, give as many people uh, the chance to, to apply and avail of that as possible.
2: Uh, last one so uh, is the plan in the future to not track how people are doing but to stay in touch with your recipients to see what becomes of their education what becomes of their intended goals to make their community a better place like Rachel Hocko from Roshun Newfoundland and Labrador who was last year's recipient what's the plan to stay in touch and to you know see so, what so kind so of impact okay. these young people are having
4: I am so glad you asked that, Patty. Um, both of our recipients so far, uh, we've done it two years in a row. This will be our third year. Um, Erica Evely was our first uh, recipient from uh, Carbonier. Um She's a member of the Premier's Youth Council and has been involved. Uh, she's going the partisan route, which is fine, and that's that's great. You don't have to do that, but... Uh, she's already making a big uh, impact and, and making herself known uh, as a as a future leader. Um, both her and Rachel uh, attended uh, Newfoundland Youth Parliament earlier this year, which we started after uh, the pandemic. Um, so they're both getting stuck in, uh, learning more, making those connections. Um, you know, with make, making making friends, but also uh, future acquaintances and and, and networks. Um, I, I have no doubt that we're going to see more uh, from both of them in the future, uh, and I look forward to keeping in touch uh, with them and seeing uh, how their progress goes. And, hey, you know, whoever gets it this year, uh, we'll, be, we'll be following up with them and making sure that uh, uh, that they, they, they go on to succeed and, and whatever they want to do as well. So uh, absolutely, super excited for, for both of them and and for whoever we pick this year.
2: I appreciate the time, Ben. So, folks, it's simple. It's ca for all the info. Good talking to you, Ben. Thank you, Patty. Cheers. Take care. Bye-bye. All right, uh, one more before we get to the news. Let's go to line number two. Jim, you're on the air.
5: Yes, good
6: morning, Patty. How are you this morning? Not,
2: not too bad, thanks. You?
6: No, not too bad at all, sir. I am going back to uh, their, uh, their Monday night day were setting out papers here in North River concerning the council. Uh, the council here in North River, we had a, a, a allegation was going on right now, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, was concerning fraud... At twenty four thousand two hundred and sixty five dollars Okay. The council decided that they weren't going to press charges. Uh, Wasn't going to turn it over to the RCMP. Okay. Um, uh, Apparently what happened was, uh, I mean, I got this here on paper now. There was a breach of trust there involved. There was theft. Of twenty-four thousand two hundred and sixty-five dollars, and apparently this was the, uh, devoted into the, the 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 lady that worked in the office was put into her account, was uh, passed uh, directed into her account in the bank in May Roberts, and went to another bank, another bank picked up on it, notified the council here in North River, and. As far as we're concerned in North River, all these things, that should have been turned over to the RCMP. But now you find out that there was five councillors under decided that uh, they weren't going to pass it over to the RCMP, and up to now, they still haven't turned it over to the RCMP. What we're getting at here in North River, the fact is, there was the taxpayer's money and uh, the... When the uh, the uh, $24,265 went to the bank, it went to her personal, and it was said on the paper, for personal use. So it was theft. It was a breach of trust, which carries, I was listening to it on VOCM the other day. There's another case similar to this going on now. Uh, Breach of trust carries a maximum of 14 years. There's forgery involved. And the step involved. Do you think I this mean, is a better, conver-
2: think think is a better conversation? Hold on. Do you think this is a better conversation between you and law enforcement versus throwing these things out there and might possibly get yourself in hot water?
6: No, no, but I'm, I'm, I'm just, what I'm saying is, we, I got this here on paper, Patty. This says here $24,265. The town, it uh, the, the cost the town $220. But the the banker in Bay Roberts picked up on it. So what would your suggestions be? Can't the people of North River go to the RCMP and have this investigated?
2: Yes, that's what I'm saying. Isn't that the place for the conversation is with law enforcement versus for instance, with me because uh,
6: oh yeah no no I'm not arguing with you Patty I'm not getting no, saying no, no what I'm saying is the fact is if a youngster goes into a store they pick up a bar and put it in their pocket next thing they got them charged and gone to uh, a family court but here it is uh, you're not talking a dollar or two dollars or five dollars you're going back you're talking 24, 25,000
2: <clears> oh yeah no, the, the numbers are absolutely real Oh, yeah. Okay. I'll, I'll give you the last word, though, Jim, because some of these things, when we get into oh, things yeah. that belong inside the courtroom or with law enforcement investigations, I don't really know what to say because I don't have any documentation. I don't know who, who we're talking about. I'm not really sure exactly what's going on. No, but, I, I mean, say. you can say your piece for sure.
6: Yeah, yeah. Well, we, uh, we faxed a couple of papers in here to the VOCM there uh, Monday, I think it was, Tuesday morning. You should have a copy of it in there.
2: Okay, I'll have a look for them. I have not seen them, Jim, but of course I don't generally get much in the way of facsimiles are sent to no, me, no. but I'll have a look around the office.
6: No, yeah, and that's like, uh, no, one more thing before I go, Teddy. Okay. Uh, back in 2017, the town of North River, we were $70,000 to the good. You know what we are today? No. We're uh, $445,586 in back taxes. Yikes. Joe, that's Whoa. a big difference in four
2: years, isn't it? Uh, of course it is. That's a massive yeah. difference in four years. Uh, Jim, I appreciate oh. appreciate the time. If this takes it to the next level and an investigation begins, just keep me in the loop. Indeed I will,
5: buddy. Guaranteed okay. I'll be on the
6: spot.
2: Thanks, Jim. Take care. All right, uh, let's go ahead and take a break for the news. When we come back, plenty of time to speak with you on a topic of your choosing. Don't go away.
1: Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. Welcome back. Let's do it. Line
2: number three. Peter, you're on the air.
7: Yes. Good morning, Patty, and thanks for taking me call. No problem. Um, I guess I'm speaking on uh, healthcare care in uh, general, but to uh, more define it, I guess I'm speaking about uh, the medical centre in Whitburn, and there's uh, on VOCM news this morning that di- diverting their uh, emergency cases to uh, Placentia and St. John's Saw and that, yeah. uh, Cabineer. But anyway, uh, what I'm saying is, I don't know if this is a pilot project or what. You know, but like the last time I called, they were down to one doctor from six, and uh, you know, apparently there must be no doctor this morning to uh, handle those uh, emergency cases. I'm not, I'm not sure, but having said that, Patty, like you know, for uh, for the Trans Canada Highway and other places. You know, with the amount of accidents and things like that, especially places like Doe Hills, Fog, now, that kind of stuff, you know, that's little consolation for the person that's in that accident. If, if well, there, there have to be a lot of accidents, and there will be more. Or for the person who was down in uh, Normans Cove, Long Cove, or wherever the case may be. <coughs> Excuse me, sorry. Uh, for uh, with a heart attack or, uh, you know, like... Uh, other emergencies, you know, and what are we going to do, you know, like what, what, what's the plan to bring them over and, and put them in the quarters of a carbon air, like the area in uh, health science uh, in St. John's, you know, like uh, there's almost like traffic in there on the 401 in Ontario, lined up in the quarters, you know, waiting for someone to get a bid or someone to see them. And I think it's very unfair. I don't think the government has given it enough a thought. And I really believe, you know, like we should try to recruit doctors for this specific area. And like here where I'm to, Southern Harbor Arnold Cove, have Science, you know, we use that facility too. And, uh, you know, like, uh, and the two doctors in Arnolds Arnold Cove, they were originally there for a number of years, but one was really down to a very, very minimum of patients. And, uh, and, the the other uh, one well was never replaced, so you know there's a, you're not talking six doctors in this general area now. Well, like I don't know how many more from Placentia or, or Carboner has gone, but we're talking eight there. You know, well no seven. There is still one at the, at the medical center in Whitburn. So you know, like instead of putting a and I don't mean to be sarcastic. I don't mean to take a straight bite anybody. But, you know, when you talk about building a premier's office in Grand Windsor, and when you talk about giving hundreds of hundreds of thousands of dollars for security for the part of the royal family to go down to a buddy or whatever the case may be and leave people that need doctors on a regular basis, you know, not, not to provide that service to them, you know, I think that's really getting... Uh, getting to the lowest, the lowest, you know.
2: But do you think, Peter, it's a, a matter of they're not willing to pay a doctor to set up clinic here in the province or they're having a hard time finding the doctors to set up shop?
7: Well, I, I, I really don't know, Patty. I, I don't know why they're leaving either. That, that's that's something uh, that bothers me. I, I don't know why they come here, so unless it's a part of finishing up their training or advancing to from a family physician up to some kind of a surgeon or not you know but it seems like for all of those doctors to go out at a Whitburn there must be something dearly regarding the health situation here that's by government and they can't be happy with the the working conditions or the pay I'm not sure about that I can't but you know like Premier Fury and John Hagee should know you know like we, we, a lot of people, not me, but a lot of people cried for the White Ball to move on. But it's a lot of people, the 125,000, 125,000 people this morning, without doctors, would love to have the White Ball back. I'm sure. Why
2: well, you think it would be a different circumstance with a different premier?
7: Well, the White Ball wasn't a doctor. I don't think. No, he was a
2: pharmacist by trade. Yeah.
7: Yeah, and uh, you know, so like, I, I, I think they got. If they feel that they got all the answers, John Heggie and and Premier Fury, well, maybe you know, like sometimes they should get some advice because I don't think there's any other problems. There is other problems in some similar predicaments, but we are the worst of the worst, and we got the lowest population and we get 125,000 and approximately 500,000 people that don't have a family physician.
2: Yeah, 24% of the population doesn't have access to a family doctor. It's look it, it's certainly a dire situation. No argument for me on that front. I I hear from people around the country that tune in like for instance a lot we get a lot of listeners up in the north of uh, Alberta for the yes. obvious reasons they're from here. And The competitive nature and the highly mobile professional that is a a medical doctor in this country and in this world, I think the struggle is real in various parts of the country. Now, people don't want to hear that because they're only concerned with the province. I get that. But we're also talking about doctors that have options, massive options. And whether it be based on amenities and opportunities for the rest of their family or the rate of pay and or conditions or the relationship with the regional health authorities, I don't know. And I imagine every doctor has different wants uh, when they go uh, go to decide where they'd like to practice so I don't know what's going on, but I will add this. This is a huge problem for the politicians, right? It's a huge problem for the government in Newfoundland and Labrador. So it sounds like a strange tactic to simply purposefully not want to have doctors there because they're facing questions about it every day. The political win would be clear. If they could reduce the number of people without a family doctor quick, that's a political win. So it's hard to believe that they've just turned a blind eye to it because it's politically very damaging. I would imagine they're doing what they can. Are they doing an well, <laughs> proof's in the pudding. We have 125,000 people without doctors. You know, maybe some of the long-term moves with those five additional seats for locals at the Munns Med School, but that's not going to help anyone today who's being diverted from Whitburn to St. John's in the emergency room. So, I mean, I hear these stories all the time. I understand.
7: Yeah, okay, but i just say this, you know, like, not having a doctor, that's one thing. But when you close an institution like the Medical Center in Whitburn from emergencies... That is there to help out people with heart problems, whatever the or accidents on our highways. I think that I have to say, this is the lowest of the low. And uh, thanks for taking me, Kyle.
2: Anytime, Peter. I appreciate the time. Oh, okay, thank you. Bye. Take care. Bye bye. All right, uh, let's go ahead and take a break. How are we doing out there, Dave, on the phones? All right, we could uh, always use more calls. It's a calling show, after all. If you're in the St. John's Metro Region, the number to dial to get in the queue to talk about whatever you like: two seven three five two one one. Or elsewhere, it's toll-free long distance: one eight eight eight. 590 VOCM, which is 8626. We're taking a break, and then we're coming back. And welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number four. Doc, you're on the air. Good
5: morning, Patty. How are you? Not
2: too bad, I suppose. How about you?
5: Uh, very good, boy, I must say. I just good. got back from the, uh, listening to my grandson at St. Vons give a little speech in uh, grade, grade two. And kids today, their they're really brave, stand up, and way to go. <sighs>
2: You know, uh, one of the most important skills I think people find one of people's greatest fears is speaking in front of others. Right? Yeah. That, that, there's so many people out there; they're super slick inside their own social circles, or what have you. But get them up in front of a crowd? Not doing it? Can convince them to do it? I would suggest that for young people, if you can overcome that hurdle, young in life, you're going to have a massive advantage over a lot of your peers when you grow up because it's a super uh, super important skill if you can get it get it under your belt. And look, I mean, I speak in front to people all the time not just here but like in at events all the time and i get the little pang of nerves before i get up there too so yeah. it's just that once you get that first word out of your mouth you start to settle down so public speaking is a pretty important tool
5: yeah these kids were great i mean Excellent. grade one and two imagine what they would be like when they finish grade 12.
2: Yeah, I, I love it what was the speech about
5: Oh, they each created their own speech. Some of them spoke about their family. Some of them uh, put things into a a poem and recited the poem. I mean, they were creative, too, as well as well-spoken.
2: I think that's brilliant. And uh, back in the public speaking days in our grade school, it was me and Jerry Jackman who often came out on top. Grrr.
5: (laughs) Teddy, I want to talk about your conversation with Roger Grimes earlier this week.
2: He was actually on the morning show, but yeah, go ahead.
5: Yeah, and he was uh, he was good. He he nailed it. I mean, he went back to a time when he and I and the Consumer Group for Fair ga- Gas Prices initiated the price regulation system, and and they put George Sanders in as the commissioner, and of course. Restless history. After that, Saunders was removed and the P.U.B. took it over. And I think the important message that Roger got out there was that we can't afford to leave, just go back to the old way and leave everything in the hands of the gas and oil companies. So there, there has to be regulation. And... It's really important, I know, a committee has been appointed by government to study the PUB and to look at the formula and to be more transparent. And, you know, that needs to be done as soon as possible and needs to be done before the winter comes on. I mean, you talk about transparency. I would meet with George Sanders fairly regularly whenever he came in here from Bishop Falls, and we'd talk about regulation, about the formula, how it was working, and, and so on. There's not that kind of transparency with the PUB. And, of course, this is where government is headed. And, as I say, the sooner the better. We need to see changes in the early fall before winter sets in.
2: Yeah, I, yeah. I'm of two minds here. Look, I think it's going to be great that the PUB might have to hold public hearings on setting the price of uh, various fuels and, you know, to articulate as to why they've adjusted the price one way or the other. But that might not change the price. We just would understand the recipe. The cake would still be baked and it might still taste as terrible as it does today. So I don't even know whether or not, if you look back at the way it was set up with Mr. Saunders, if the prices of uh, various fuels would be any different today. It's hard to know, which is why just the transparency piece doesn't necessarily mean that we're going to pay less at the pump. You know, the refinery margins are massive. The profits for the oil companies are massive. The price of a barrel of crude is about 70% of the eventual price at the pump. So we just have to understand more how we are, where we are, where we think we're heading, and whether or not we need to change the approach of the Petroleum Pricing Board. I don't know the answer to that, but I'm sure fed up going to fill up.
5: Yeah, and you're right. I mean, what we need to know as consumers is that the formula is right, the formula is working, and that the price that is being set – is a legitimate price based on a formula that has been well thought out and a formula... That is, working a formula that we can we can develop on our own and look at how others are regulating, look at the formula the old commission used, and be creative and maybe make changes and bring it up to date. As long as we know that we're being treated properly at the pump, then we're happy. And that was the philosophy way back in the year 2000. We just, as consumers, we wanted to be treated fairly and openly at the pump.
2: Yeah, I mean, would be curious to know if the P.U.B., is using the same benchmark to, uh, to apply in the formula as other provinces. Because yep. there should be no need for any change across the board, because the benchmark is the benchmark. I, I mean, That's it's right. there's no way to you know to try to digest it and decipher it. It is what it is. So if we're using, like for instance, Damik Teague says he uses a different uh, number in his formula versus what he believes the PUB is using when he does some reverse engineering. So I, these are complicated matters, I suppose. But I'd like to know more about it, personally. But I'm an info junkie, I suppose, same. Anyway, hey, Doc, I see that's not what you called about, so let's go.
5: No. Well, the, the other thing I, I called about is that I, I want to encourage Newfoundlanders and Labradorians to get out vocally in support of our offshore. Our offshore is so 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 important financially down the road to this province as we transition into alternative energy forms. I mean that's going to happen. It's gonna be a while. We have a resource that has that is legitimate, we have a resource that is environmentally friendly. I mean the Sierra Club don't they don't see it that way. I've yet to hear anybody from the Sierra Club put any faith in the environmental agency of Canada's decision to allow the, Bay the Nord development to go ahead. Essentially what the Sierra Club is saying is that we know better than than the environmental agency of Canada. We we no. I mean they don't know. They approve Baeton the Nord. They shouldn't have but you know, this agency set up by the federal government has a, uh, and an analytical formula that they use to look at projects and decide whether or not they're environmentally fringy, fr- uh, friendly. And and Nord went through that and came out with flying colours. Uh, Stephen Giebel had to approve it. I know he'd like to kill the Newfoundland Labrador offshore if he could, as would the Sierra Club. Uh, you know, the Sierra Club... Uh, penny i i come back to the the statement they made a while ago about about beta nord and, and essentially what they were saying is that anybody who approves of beta nord is approving of death and destruction now where are they going with that i as a newfoundlander and labradorian am in favor of beta nord i'm optimistic about beta nord for the future of newfoundland and labrador and I resent the fact that they say that I'm in favor of death and destruction. Well, you and can put me- that label <laughs> on all Newfoundlanders and Labradorians. I mean, they would kill this industry, just like Greenpeace wanted to kill the seal fishery.
2: Well, they did. Um, so, in fairness, Beta Nord was reviewed on the parameters that were established in 2019. They've changed. If the same application came forward today, it would likely be killed. If Minister Gibo wanted to not release it from the environmental assessment, he could have done exactly that, regardless of what the impact assessment agency says, because the buck stops on the minister's desk. All of that said, I mean... You have a perspective that doesn't include some of the concerns that the Sierra Club speaks to. So, I mean, obviously, where you stand depends on where you sit. And sometimes some of the rhetoric gets carried away. You know, cities on fire and what have you. But we do know, we see what's happening with uh, people being displaced from parts of the world which are no longer inhabitable. And things are changing. And the climate concerns are real. I mean, it's not because I say so, and it's not only because of the consensus amongst the scientific community, it's because the oil companies themselves say it. They know it. Yeah, that we, they- We've seen that they presented in front of the Senate, for instance, in the United States, and they have told, uh, they were presenting a lie about the industry, just like the tobacco industry was presenting a lie all those years until we figured it out. So the oil companies know it's real, the insurance companies know it's real, and the Sierra Club, they simply have a focus that is uh, directly on the environment, and greenhouse gas, emissions, and that's not your position. So I know people felt insulted, and I think Nord was an economic requirement in this province, to be honest with you, even though I fully acknowledge the, you know, life cycle of greenhouse gas emissions, and even if ours is the low carbon intensity oil, you know, that still only makes up about 15 percent of the entire life cycle so there's concerns to be voiced on either side I choose not to be personally insulted maybe because I just don't have the brain power to deal with those types of things anymore but you know uh, again it's a classic case of where you stand depends on where you sit on this controversial issue will there be more fields like uh, Jim Keating says he foresees three or four potentials the size of Bader or or larger in the next decade does that come to pass under this Liberal government maybe not I mean Mr. Gibo's words are quite clear you don't have to read between the lines but governments change hands in the yeah, industry what itself Gable
5: said Patty was that he, he it was going to be difficult in the future yeah. excuse me to get approvals and and that's fine uh, I mean you set your parameters and then each development is analyzed in relation to whether or not they meet those parameters. And that's fine, providing the parameters are not deliberately set so high that nobody can meet them. I mean, we, we have to be reasonable, and we, yes, we set the environmental Uh, regulations and the environmental parameters and I've been told by people in the oil and gas industry about companies like Equinor and how they're quite ready with their technology and new technology to to meet these parameters and so as long as the playing field is level that is fine but again I come back to the Sierra Club when you start using fear To frighten people down a certain road is just like Trudeau using the carbon tax to put the price of fuel high to the point where people have no alternative but to go in another direction. The road to success is not fear. The road to success is to provide alternative measures that people can accept and people then will go on and go down that alternative road.
2: Uh, yeah, I think maybe some use fear on the economic front too, with the importance of the oil industry in the province. I, I, and I get it. You know, I mean, I hear these types of things all the time. Carbon tax about eleven cents. But I find cur- the most curious thing about carbon tax or a price on pollution is, it used to be about policy, not about politics. The champion of the carbon tax at one point in our political history in this country was the father of this Conservative Party of Canada, Stephen Harper. He was in favor of, and now it's become if it's a liberal, uh, if it's a liberal tax implied or imposed, then it's stupid as opposed to if Harper was still in government we'd have a carbon tax why because he was a proponent of so it's yeah. it, the, the policy conversation has kind of been shelved by the straight-up partisanship if it's a good idea the, if the liberals think it's a good idea the conservatives automatically think it's not and vice versa when in fact they should be reminded neither party has it all figured out neither party has all the answers Neither politician has all the answers or understands the implications of every single issue under the sun they simply don't your party is not perfect and what party is that everybody
5: you're right. And, they, they, I mean, that comes back to a point you made a, a, little, a few minutes ago, and that was that governments change.
2: Yeah, they do. And,
5: <laughs> and I, again, I'll finish with this. We need a change in Ottawa because Ottawa is not in favour of Newfoundland and Labrador. Just not, and uh, I don't hear any talk about the pipeline that Trudeau bought, and it's costing an arm and a leg. Twenty, I think it's up to twenty-one or twenty-two billion dollars now for that pipeline carrying dirty fuel from Alberta uh, into British Columbia for export. Nobody says a word. I don't hear the Sierra Club going on a rant.
2: Oh, they I don't went haywire. The
5: Club going on a rant about the, uh, uh, the oil sands, or, uh, you know, but they're hell bent, boy, they kill Newfoundland and Labrador. Oh, Doc. you the amusing thing? The representatives of the Sierra Club that I've listened to are Newfoundlanders and Labradorians.
2: Yeah, and they also consider themselves uh, citizens of the planet, and their concerns are well understood. And I, th- I think you maybe didn't pay much attention to what the Sierra Club had to say when oh, the, yes, I did. W- well, they went absolutely haywire when the federal government uh, purchased that Kinder Morgan line, uh, Trans Mountain.
5: Yeah, but they've been quiet ever since. I, and yes, the, I mean they're people of the planet. I just don't know what planet they're on.
2: Oh, well, I mean, I don't know what to say to that. Um, uh, Anyway, Doc, appreciate the time. Have a nice weekend.
5: Thanks, Patty. You too.
1: All
2: the best. Bye-bye. Yeah, uh, let's take a break.
1: Weekday mornings from 5.30 to 9. Jumpstart your day with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy. Newsmakers, traffic, weather, and more during your VOCM morning
8: show.
2: Welcome back to the show. (laughs) Uh, Let's go. Line number four, Wayne, you're on the air. Hi,
8: Patty. How are you this morning? I'm
2: doing okay, Wayne. How about you?
8: All right, but listen, uh I uh I gotta replace my oil drum next week. Uh apparently, uh I got my oil drum is inside. It's like brand new, but I uh, I think apparently it gotta be replaced every fifteen years or so. But it costs thirty three hundred dollars to replace it. Mhm. I mean that doesn't include the probably sixteen hundred dollars it's gonna cost to fill it up, so no it's going to be like a five thousand dollar slap in one one bill sort of thing i was just wondering is there any any rebates or anything for oil drums because you know oil is not going to go out of production in the next 20 years i don't think but
2: well no I mean, people are going to be heating their home with uh, furnace oil for a while yeah absolutely right there was such a thing as a fuel tank replacement assistance program but that was like a decade ago, the last I remember even hearing about it, now some of these supports or rebates are for converting from oil to electricity to heat your home. I don't even know if there's such a beast as the fuel tank replacement to program anymore to be honest with you. I,
8: I don't know, I've never heard, you know, I got the yellow program with the with one of the oil companies uh, and it, of course it doesn't cover oil barrels, it covers your furnace sort of thing. Sure. Uh, but, you know, I was just wondering because I mean there's a
2: lot of money. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. You know what? It was under the Department of Finance, that much I remember for sure. What I can do for you, Wayne, is I will send an email to the department to see if that th- actually exists any longer. I know it did. It absolutely did. There was a one point five two million dollars that was in a pot of money where folks could get some assistance in replacing their yeah, their fuel hard. tank, I mean, but I just don't know if that's a still a thing. I really don't. But I'll find out.
8: All right, man. Thanks a lot. No problem, Wayne. Yeah.
2: all right yeah I'll uh so someone at the department of finance that's listening right now can you just send me a very quick email let me know if that particular program is still something it once was but I haven't heard about it in so long that I have a funny feeling it's gone by the wayside uh let's go to line one Terry you're on the air good morning Patty. morning <coughs> I'm talking about the fishery again Patty. um more
9: specifically the the shrimp fishery or lack thereof um as some of your listening, listeners are aware, including you, I guess, um, we uh, are trying to get the shrimp fishery started. What I mean by we is my enterprise, me and my son's enterprise. And We left to go fishing uh, a few days ago uh, without a buyer, but we were hoping that before we landed with shrimp aboard, there would be a Newfoundland buyer that would agree to buy it. Uh, so that we would not have to dump it. But uh, we had uh, some serious mechanical troubles, so we we didn't bring any shrimp in. We had to come back and uh, get repairs done. But we're leaving again uh, either uh, tonight or really early tomorrow morning. So uh, the same thing stands. We're going to go out and fish. If nobody buys it, uh, we're going to have it monitored by the uh, the uh, Fisheries Resource Centre, which monitors your quotas and uh, and, uh, then we'll have to dump it or give it away to charity if anybody wants it, or if the government lets us give it away to charity. But anyway, the main reason I'm calling this morning is uh, to comment on the deafening silence on this issue. Now, you had a guy on there a few minutes ago, I heard you call him Doc, I don't know who he is. Oh, sorry, that's
2: Dennis O'Keefe, former mayor of the City of St. John's. Okay. That's his nickname. Everyone knows him as Doc. I'm sorry. Okay. I knew the voice sound from there, but I couldn't put a name on him. So, uh, anyway,
9: in one of his uh, uh, moments, he started off with Our Offshore, and I shivered. I thought he was going to mention Our Offshore Fishery, but uh, I think he's like the premier. Uh, He don't know how to spell the word fish, I don't think. His life revolves around oil, 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 and oil, which is important. I mean, oil is... uh, Important to our province, no doubt about that. But so is the fishery. And there's not one word, not one whisper from Andrew Fury or from uh, the provincial minister His name is uh, Loveless, I think, or something like that.
2: Yeah, Elvis uh, Loveless, yeah.
9: Yeah. Not one whisper about this uh, uh, shrimp fishery, uh, this under. Million dollar, plus more like $150 million fishery. Uh, not a whisper about what we're trying to do to get the fishery going. Not one whisper about trying to get ASP and the FFAW back to the bargaining table to reach a resolution to this. Not one mention. I mean, Andrew Fury wouldn't know how to spell the word fish if his mouth was full of it. And I I suppose Lovelace would know how to spell it. He got appointed the Minister of Fisheries, but then Trudeau appointed a tree planter for a federal Minister of Fisheries, too. So, (laughs) you know, you can't make assumptions there. But uh, not one mention. Like, they don't care. They couldn't give two... It gives the impression that they couldn't give two hoots if there's a shrimp fishery or not. They're very concerned about whether... And know uh, there was bullying with elections, Newfoundland, Labrador, and they'll spend hundreds of thousands of dollars of taxpayers' money doing studies on that, and they'll banter around, right and down, they'll row, they'll argue over what elections Newfoundland, Labrador did and what somebody done and somebody didn't say, and and they'll preach about tourism, which is important. They'll preach about the oil industry, which is important. Uh, they'll preach about. I don't know, some other foolishness, uh, some of the stuff they talk about. Uh, But the fishery, which this province was built on, which was the reason for this province uh, becoming populated in the beginning, hundreds of years ago, there's not one, one word, and the premier is the leader of this province. I mean, yes, Lovelace is the fisheries minister, but the premier has the power and the authority to call him into his office one day and say, listen, Mike, for God's sake, if I get up in front of the mic and say the word fish. Say the word shrimp. It's spelled S H R I M P, by the way, in case Fury and Lovelace don't know how to spell the word. Uh, you know, give two seconds of your time and say, the word shrimp just say the word shrimp in front of a microphone and what does that catch you well it gets uh, it gets recognition that they know there is a shrimp fishery in Newfoundland There's, there's something called shrimp in Newfoundland and it brings in a hundred plus million dollars even now with our reduced quotas to the provincial economy. It, it it lets me and the public know that Loveless and theory know how to spell things other than oil and tourism and mining, which are all important, but there's also something that we spell F I S H. We don't spell it Agriculture, A-Q-U-C-U-L, whatever way. They, they, they love that one, aquaculture. Oh, man, that's a juicy one. That's wonderful. That steak sauce on. But the wild fishery, they don't know it exists in this province. And the wild fishery in this province this year is going to be over uh, in excess of a $2 billion industry. And theory, the useless premier we got, don't even have the decency to go in front of a mic and say, Newfoundlanders and Labradorians, I know how to spell wild fishery. It spells W-I-L-D F-I-S-A-T-E-R-Y. Okay.
2: All right. So uh, Elvis Lovelace was the Minister of Fisheries. He's, he's now in transportation. Now it's Derek Bragg. That's right. Uh, okay. Uh, okay right. Yeah, I'm just getting the names out there. Um, and I would imagine they all know how to spell it, but do they understand the industry? I don't know. I think that's obviously going to be a very good question because, you know, there is that real problematic deal or relationship between the province and the federal government to manage an industry like the fishery. You know, people talk about custodial management. We should have all the uh, the decision-making power right here, even though I think that's possibly a little bit dangerous as well, because if we can buy a vote with a kilometer a payment, we can certainly buy a vote with a, with a quota. So, anyway, I'll give you the last word, Terry.
9: Well, this is not a management issue I'm talking about here. I, I know the federal government manages the fishery uh, conservation, quota wise and all that. This is a pricing issue, which is under provincial jurisdiction.
2: Do you want the politicians to get involved in pricing?
9: I want them to get the parties together. I mean, if there was a provincial strike of uh, uh, nurses in this province or doctors or, uh, or transportation workers— eventually we get to the point where the government would appoint a mediator and saying, Boys, listen, we, we can't let this go on they would get involved at a harm's length. But and they can do the same there with the SFAW and ASP. But there's not one mention couldn't care less, and I don't care if I'm being defamatory. It don't bother me if Andrew Fury wants to sue me. Come on, buddy, I'm ready for you. Because he's the most useless, useless, useless premier regarding the fishery, in my opinion, this province has ever asked. He was probably a good doctor. I don't know. He probably was. The man got some book learning, like I do. But he's the most useless, useless figure okay, regarding the fishery we've ever had.
2: So isn't the, isn't the mediator the price-setting panel? Isn't it an incumbent on one side or the other to go back to the uh, drawing board and try to come up with a price that people can harvest and see sold to the local processors? I mean, isn't that the mediator that's available? It's not working. It's not well, not no one's reapplied. That's why it's not working.
9: But it's not working because the price-setting panel, the government, in its wisdom, where whatever government did it, I don't care what government did it. It was a past government that set that up in legislation. They they had it set up, and I'm being repetitive there, so that the panel has to choose one or the other final offer. They cannot pick in between, and there lies the problem. Who can change that? The premier of this province, and the along with his minister of labor and his minister of fisheries and whatever other cabinet ministers he got to bring into his office. He's not changing it, he's not even opening his mouth to it because, in my opinion, from his actions, he don't even know we got a wild fishery in this
2: province. Appreciate the time, Terry. Thanks for the call. Good luck with Thank it. You. Okay, bye-bye. Uh, let's take a break. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number three. Say good morning to the president of the Trail of the Caribou Research Group. That's Major, retired Michael Pretty, joining us on line number two. Good morning, Major.
10: You're on the air. Good morning, Paddy. How are you doing today? Doing okay, thanks. How about you? I'm listening to some pretty heated conversations about uh, about the fishery, eh?
2: Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I suppose he can he can take whatever perspective he likes I suppose it's not for me to yeah. to determine but um, you know I guess sometimes people just ask themselves whether or not to do themselves any favors with uh, yep. some of the approach people take but hey that's not up to me that's up to them emotions emotions always run well it's an emotional way. issue I, I get it but uh, anyway I'm going to leave it at that uh, so tell us about what you're working on with the Trail of the Caribou Research
10: Group oh my <laughs> so um, we're a volunteer not-for-profit organization registered charity and um, past two years we've been doing school outreach programs we got an essay competition on the go right now in high schools all you have to do is write an essay 800 uh, to 1200 words and it goes into a drum and whoever's name gets picked out because it's grade 7 to 12 they can take themselves and a parent to a trip to Gallipoli with us in September all expenses paid and we've been told that the caribou the seventh caribou was going to be unveiled over there at that time
2: Amazing opportunity. That's one of my yeah. bucket list trips. Is to do the trail. Like a couple of my pals have had, they said that you know it was life changing experience. So it is. essay writing is it, is until it on you the go there? Right? Pardon me. You don't get it till you go there. Oh, I would imagine that's exactly right. So is it just one topic available for essay, or what are they being asked to do?
10: Um, the essay topic is any event uh, in Gallipoli that involved a Newfoundland soldier or a Newfoundlander, because there's lots of that were in the, the British and Australian and armies and navies over there, mm-hmm. or any, any soldier that served, would have served in Gallipoli.
2: Very cool. And, of course, you also have some fundraising ongoing, too, for we, some of these trips?
10: Yeah. So we have a trip for two, uh, tickets on sale. And you can get those through our website, uh, trailtocaribur.ca. There's a link there. You can buy them. They can call me if they want. Um, And they'll they'll be on sale in various stores around the province in the next uh, couple of weeks. And that's, again, an all-inclusive trip for two worth about $8,000, airfare, flights, hotels. We're creating a commemorative medallion for Gallipoli. There's only going to be a couple hundred of those. And everybody that goes on the trip will get them. If you're looking to purchase one separately, they're on on uh, our Shopify account, our online store. And yeah, we're we're doing all kinds of stuff. We're going to hopefully taking a documentary film crew with us to um, to get the emotional side of why are all these people going over there? You know, why are why are 107 years later? Why are people making that trek? And I've I've done it before, Um, and we're a charity, so it's it's basically at cost. So we're not uh, we're not allowed to make money when we're doing this kind of stuff. And we're going to go to Troy for a day. You know, that's where Brad Pitt got shot in the ankle with the arrow, right? And uh, a couple of days in Istanbul, um, looking at the Blue Mosque, the Hagia Sophia, the underground cisterns, get some culture. And there's families coming along, and there are special groups coming along. Yeah. And it's uh, 11 days. The ground portion is only $1,795. But we want to try to sell the tickets because that'll help pay for the documentary film crew and that kind of stuff. And they're five bucks each or three for 10. So there's not overly expensive. And there's only 6,000 being sold. So you've got a one in 6,000 chance of a trip for two of a lifetime because it's never going to happen again. Right.
2: Did you happen to see the documentary that Alan Hawko and Mark Rich made?
10: I did, I did, yeah
2: I thought that was pretty good too, uh, to it be honest yep. Okay, so I- inside of this, and I'll just get your reaction to a news story uh, You know, this happened a little while ago Where the remains of Private John Lambert was discovered in Belgium yeah. So the archaeological dig, I think they found a soldier uh, Pardon me, the shoulder title, some inniskilling fusilier cap badge, a couple of other regiment's shoulder titles He's now yeah. going to be buried in Belgium upcoming It's a fascinating story
10: the thirtieth of June is, is, and we're going to have. Uh, we've got some members from our organization that live in Belgium, and they're going to they're going to go and attend that. But yeah, can, how how can you? I'm rotted. I can't go because I've already got a trip planned somewhere else at that time. But uh, it's it's going to be an emotional emotional thing because you know, a hundred and plus years later, they're going to officially bury a fellow that has been laying in a, in a in an unknown grave for a century.
2: Yeah, he, he was killed in the Battle of Langmark. So, yep. Langemark. Langemark, yep. yeah. He lied about his age. He was 16 when he joined the regiment. Mm-hmm. A year later, yeah. he was dead at the age of 17. It, it's fascinating. We had Greg Walsh, uh, the archivist at the rooms, come yeah. on the program, talk about the discovery, when it was made. And fascinating one. Yeah, it's just unreal. And apparently, there's this one woman with a very small committee that that's what she does. This is her yep. total job in this world, is to deal with other countries and the archaeological digs to try to identify lost soldiers, including members of the Royal Newfoundland Regiment. So, Do you have her contact information? Boy, you know what? I used to. I can get it for you. Could you? Yeah, I absolutely we, can get it uh, for you.
10: We've been, we've been doing extensive research, and we think we know where some other ones are buried, but it, it's, a, it's in a parking lot on a, in a town square. Wow. How do you—yeah, you know, yeah Yeah, and we don't want to see the names get hopes up, but there's there's a lot of work being done by a lot of volunteers that, that do this kind of stuff.
2: So she, her, she's yeah. a forensic pathologist uh, yep. uh, with the department itself. Uh, her name mm-hmm. is Sarah Lockyer. Tells uh, Dave Williams tells me, but we will try to get you direct contact information for her. But I think you'd probably be able to find her just simply by Sarah Lockyer, uh, the Department of Defense. And so there might be some contact there. If you don't have any luck, though, Major, get back to me, and I'll try to find up the direct the, find the direct contact info for you. Yep.
10: So one of, the, one of the cool things about Gallipoli is we were over there uh, in 2015 with another awesome fellow by the name of Frank Gogus, and we actually found trenches that the Newfoundland Regiment dug. Wow. Yeah, and you know. we found the blockhouse where the November flood was. So we actually go there, and we have recordings that CBC did. Sorry about the other news station. That CBC did back in the day of these fellows talking about the flood. So we, we hump in across the field, but maybe half a kilometer, and we have these speakers with us, and we actually play their voices by the blockhouse and talk about what happened there.
2: Wild stuff, <laughs> you know. when we through your body, right? We've <laughs> seen amazing. reporters embedded in wars in recent times, and we see what we think war looks like today. Just imagine in your mind's eye, trench warfare, like... Oh, my yeah. God. Uh, amazing I stuff. I can't <laughs> either. Been 33 years. And to be honest, I don't try to because it's just so devastating. Yeah. So if you'd like to buy some of these uh, tickets on the pilgrimage that's coming up uh, from the 14th to 24th of September of this year, you can give Michael a call. I'll give out your number. But you can also simply e-transfer. It's, uh, the email address is trail at nl.rogers.com. You put your name and your cell number in the comments, and they'll text you yeah. pics of your tickets. Or would you like me to give out your number? Or would you like to do it, Michael?
10: Uh, It's uh, 727-4674. They can also go on cariboutrail.ca, and there's a whole Shopify account. They can buy it all there.
2: Awesome. Listen, good luck with it. I've enjoyed the conversation this morning. I appreciate the time.
10: No problem. Anytime.
2: Take good care. All right. right. Bye-bye. It's uh, uh, retired Major Michael Pretty with the – Carbo Trail Research Group. Great stuff. Uh, How are we doing on the phone, Dave? Let's take a break for the news. When we come back, hopefully you're in the queue. Don't go away. Every Saturday is perfect for a night
1: at the cabin. The Cabin Party with Brian O'Connell. Saturday night starting at 7 p.m. on VOCM.
2: Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Morning, Stanley. You're on the air.
11: Hi, good morning, Patty. What a coincidence, Morning. When you called me just now, I was on the highway. And I was waiting here for 45 minutes. And if I had garbage bags, Patty, I could be 45 minutes picking up garbage right here in this one spot. And where are you? Yes, I'm at Baybert Junction. Okay. Right in France, Canada. For 45 minutes, you wouldn't have missed anything I picked up. That's how bad it is
2: here. Why do I always hear about how it's always so blocked with garbage at the Bayburg Junction?
11: I don't know, but that's not what I called about David Junction, anyhow, but that, that's <laughs> right where I parked. But I called about, uh, you know, you're in on the end of wood roads and you're in here and there's just gar- bags of garbage everywhere. So I'm a cabin owner. Mm-hmm. Last week, I went to the Green Bay Depot uh, disposal. Uh, they're going down Robertson Road. I went in and... Uh, Waved me on to garbage, uh, and uh, when I was going through, this fellow stuck his head out, and I mentioned no names. And he said, how much you got today? I said, a couple of bags for us. Well, he said, now you come back next week, he said, you're going to pay $2 a bag. I said, why? Because you're a cabin owner. And there's a lot of cabin owners in Southbrook, Robert this place, that place. You know, they all got to pay $2 a bag, or is he going to carry it in and throw it on the end of the wood roads? Uh, but, uh, isn't that us advertising to uh, dump garbage paddies? <sighs>
2: Well, it's generally used as the excuse offered by many as to why they've chosen to not pay a tipping fee or a landfill charge and go down a woods road like we see far too often in the province. But how do they determine that you've got your garbage from your cabin? So is it the same for anybody who brings a bag of garbage to the landfill?
11: Uh, Apparently, he specified me, he he knows I got a cabin and uh, I'm not from, well, that town, that landfill includes many towns and I... He might have known I'm not from that town. I still pay garbage fee in see garbage dump or whatever. Yeah. But wherever I'm passing through, and like many do, you put your garbage in your truck, you drop into the handmade' garbage dump, you don't dump it over the side of the road or in on a woods road. So now, at $2 a bag, you know what I mean?
2: I do. I mean, I don't know how they justify. It. Like, for instance, you could have been wherever and decided to clean up some garbage and bring the garbage where it belongs to a landfill and still get charged two bucks a bag because you're a cabin owner. Like, there's there's a bunch of variables there that doesn't really add up. I don't know how it could be consistent.
11: Yes, I, that's that's why that's the first time and the first garbage dump. I'm actually meaning some dumps that's around the aisle in the old small places. And they're always proud you carry in a bag of garbage. They don't have to go pick it up. You know what I mean? Yeah. If I'm home, that's the time when I'm home in my hometown. I'm going to my sea. I throw my garbage in the in my truck. I go on throw it in the dump. Nobody got to pick up my garbage.
2: That's the way it should be. Um, so, the waste management plan has been kind of confusing anyway, right? Where, I mean, how many liters of fuel are we burning the truck garbage all over the place as opposed to the, what once was the local uh, landfill? Plus, municipalities have lost a significant revenue stream because some of these dumps were industrial or commercial applications, and all that money's now gone. So, I'm not really sure the waste management, or pardon me, the management uh, of our waste in the province has made a whole lot of sense, to be honest with you. And then, of course, the tax that was applied for cabin country for people to have their garbage picked up even though the vast majority of cabin owners did what they all do they took their garbage back to where they came from where they pay their property tax put it on the curb you know so it's all a bit confusing so uh, I
11: can <clears throat> I can pass along to the little town there just before I get to that garbage dump drop it on the curb and they'll pay it up, uh, pick it up they don't know who owns it
2: yeah I suppose that's true too
11: but rather than go drop it on the curb I go to the dump, i got to pay $2 a bag. Yeah. You
2: know, Again, I don't know how they can apply that fairly and consistently across the board, but uh, okay. I,
11: I don't, Patty, I don't see how they even, even apply it, period. You know, it's like you said, they don't know who's a cabin owner, they don't know. I mean, my God, you don't even know who's your next-door neighbor these days.
2: <laughs> Fair enough. I appreciate the comments and the time this morning, Stanley. Thank you, sir.
11: Uh, you're kind of welcome, Patty. I just wanted to get that out there, buddy, and thank you very much.
2: Anytime. All the best. Yeah. Bye. Okay. Bye-bye. Uh, let's keep going. Uh, line number three: Paul, you're on the air.
12: Hello, I'm uh, Paul. I'm Hi, from Paul. St. John's. And uh, I've lived in St. John's for 50 years. A very proud St. John's resident. And I've recently found out that the city of St. John's uh, has passed a bylaw that it is now illegal or against the city bylaw to feed the birds.
2: Yeah. So there's the rationale, I think, is varied. Whether it be with the prevalence of France, I think, is that the... Top Sorry, I There's a, a disease, is it called frounce, Dave? F-R-O-U-N-C-E, frounce. Hmm. And I think there's also some consideration given to backyard bird feeding uh, related to rodents because the Two rats rodents, love it. Yeah.
12: Okay, now actually now, though, those are both false. First I'll take the last, first the rodents. I've been uh, dealing with this issue now since they passed the bylaw and before. I've always fed birds in St. John's, it's just, especially the doves. The doves don't have any natural food source. They depend on people. So, you know, for the city to pass the bylaw saying we're not allowed to feed them, they're not migratory, and uh, it essentially means that we have to watch them starve at our feet. So now I've spoken with many uh, wildlife biologists and veterinarians working with the government with wildlife, who have all assured me that it cannot be transmitted to human beings. It is not communicable to people. Now, I don't know why I've been hearing on the news lately, constantly, that it is. It's essentially like hearing on the radio the sky is falling. If the birds are infected with a humanly dangerous disease, we all better dig a ditch and get in it. It essentially means the sky is infected. It's false, it's not true. So there is, there's been three cases in history of people catching this disease. The lady uh, by, by veterinarian I first spoke with about it was doing an autopsy on a bird with the disease while she was talking to me. And she did not have to take any special precautions. It is not communicable to people. And again, with the uh, idea of uh, them attracting rodents, wherever there are doves or birds, there will be much less chance of having rodents because they eat their food supply. They're essentially carp of the sky. They're little janitors. Now, just to clarify some issues there.
2: Yeah, I mean, the bird flu, I mean, people got... A fright, because I guess we're living through these times where we've been talking way too much about viruses and illnesses and diseases and the like.
12: Yes, everything's a danger now. You got to be afraid. People are afraid to go outside. You might notice in the streets.
2: <laughs> uh, I don't know. I I've choose not to be fearful myself. but And if the rationale behind backyard bird feeding is sound, okay. Some of it really does feel like it might be a bit much. I know frounce is real. I know the rodent issue is real. Uh, whether it be the possibility to contract avian flu. But, but I, I mean, it seems like there's only been a few reported cases in the history of avian flu, so I don't know. I really don't know.
12: But there's
8: Well, this uh, is what the professionals
12: have told me. I've spoken with professionals at Canadian Wildlife and local wildlife uh, programs. Oh,
2: no more than I do. Well, Absolutely.
12: Yeah, and they, like I'm not taking – like when, when I first heard about it, the first thing I did was I called the professionals and I called city council and I said, what's this all about? <clears throat> and now I'm after talking to most departments of city council. And, in fact, I don't want to make this a personal issue, but they're threatening to fine me for feeding the birds. Now, I, I live in the middle of downtown. I've been from here all my life, all my family is, for four generations. We have always fed the birds. Now, there's a real problem with the population of birds in St. John's. Every building in downtown should be covered with the seagulls right now. There's not one on them. Where have they gone? People have to take a concern with the environment of their home city.
2: What does the gull issue mean, I'm sorry?
12: Well, the gulls, I mean, just by my own personal observations and everyone I know that's local to the city, the city, you should be able to walk around downtown St. John's on the backs of doves and gulls, and they're just gone. In the past, over the past five and ten years, they've gradually been disappearing, what? and it's, along with the insects. It's becoming a real problem. Everybody's talking about it. I think everybody individually has to take a concern. It's no good being concerned about global warming and global issues and ignoring what's on your step.
2: Yeah, I guess it depends on where you are in the city because between the Dove Keys and the Ravens and the Gulls, I can tell you in no uncertain terms, my uh, neighborhood is alive and well. With birds yeah. what, Madness
12: I want to ask personally About what area of town Do you live in
2: East End In and around Dolly Haley Yeah
12: oh, Well that, that area Is just an aviary You're not going to drive The birds out of there Because no. the natural The wild birds Are over there They're, they're over towards the lakes Over towards Vippy Park and such The East End Is alive with birds Oh you know? yeah But a lot of them Are migratory The doves Don't really go over there The doves Are all around downtown
2: Yeah I don't think I've ever seen a dove In my backyard To be honest
12: Yes. Yeah, no. I mean, like out, outside the downtown area of St. John's, you're not going to see the
8: bird, the, the pigeons, the doves. No.
2: Yeah. I mean, Churchill Park. Every now and then, I used to have to look overhead because they would perch on the uh, the overhangs or the awnings of the businesses. There used to be yeah. pigeons there. A lot of pigeons in Churchill Park. Well,
12: I Park. mean, you t- anybody that's from St. John's, you know that if you go to Chess's or the center town, like around Top of Longs Hill. Yeah. Well, up until to five years ago, again, you should be able to walk around that area of town without well, touching pavement. It should be covered with doves, and they're gone.
2: Is, they're gone. Is dove interchangeable uh, word for uh,
12: pigeon? Pigeon is ancient Greek meaning young bird. Okay. It's colloquial. It's a slang term. It means a target. It actually, it's a, it's a, it's a derogatory slang term. I take offense, as a a person from a beautiful city with these beautiful animals, we're blessed to have them. I mean, they're the most, you know, okay, another thing I'll say about doves and seagulls, they don't have teeth, and they don't have fangs, and they don't have claws. They weigh about a pound, and they cannot harm person or property. They're not physically able. Their feces is the best preservative in the world. And the what? media is telling people that it's corrosive. It's acidic. You know, the, the oldest mo- architectural <laughs> monuments in the world, There's, a, I just watched a show last week about a, a, a churches in Turkey, 1,800 years old. And the head archaeologist was saying they were preserved by bird guano. For,
2: what did so you say particularly the
12: best about... Preservative in the world. Okay, what
2: a preservative for what? Statues or something? For
12: anything. As long as it doesn't dissolve in the rain, apparently it'll, it'll preserve anything it's on. It's it's totally uncorrosive.
2: It certainly preserves my patio stones because it's a real nuisance to get off. (laughs) That much I can tell you. Well, to
12: get off, yes. I mean, you you know, it's it's water soluble. You got to understand this. People that get, I mean, if you're not from St. John's, uh, you know, I lived for six years in Toronto. They got squirrels, and they were the greatest animals. Loved them. I'd like to see the city council of Toronto pass a bylaw: you're not allowed to feed the squirrels. And see how long it is before you have a revolt.
2: I think they got to start with hey, uh, raccoons.
12: I'd, I'd revolt with the people. They are great little animals.
2: Yeah, they're cute. I mean, I think the biggest. They're cute wild-
12: and they're adorable, and they're mostly harmless. But even squirrels, they got fangs. They can hurt you. But doves are, and seagulls are perfectly harmless. If one got angry at you really badly, it couldn't do anything about it
2: yeah the cacophony of the gulls in my backyard when I 'm trying to sleep is something else. Uh, oh,
12: do, well, quick quick <laughs> reference noisy, yes I'll grant you
9: that.
2: yeah, hold on one second. So in reference to avian flu, maybe not about you getting it, but the point is made in my on my computer screen here is maybe feeding more feeding the birds brings more birds together, so the bird flu avian flu may be propagated by more and more birds come to the same area to feed that's a reference being
12: well, I've made i've never even all thought of my life i've been feeding them here all my life and i've never had any avian flu problems myself or anybody in my family or friends around my place um in the past year now i've been feeding them a lot because since the city council has been telling people not to feed them the few people that are holding out and refusing to let them starve they're starting to flock up more on our steps It's actually in St. John's, you know, just by our custom stand, the customary way that we live in St. John's, we live with these animals. Uh, If you don't feed these animals, they will flock up and bunge up on whoever's house is feeding them. So it is really not courteous to your neighbors not to feed them at all. You really should.
2: Never really gave it a whole lot of thought, Paul, but I'm glad when people pepper the show with different topics so we can all maybe give it some more careful consideration. I appreciate your time this morning.
12: I really appreciate your risk, too.
2: Take good care. Have a good one. You, too. Bye-bye. All right, there you go. Uh, don't feed the bears, but maybe the birds. Let's take a break. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Da-da-da. Let's go to line number four. John, you're on the air. Yeah, good morning, Paddy. How are you? Not too bad, thanks. How about you? Good, good. What's the price of gas in St. John's right now? 224 <laughs> uh, ish
0: yeah, well, I mean I'm calling you from Saskatoon. I've lived here for a number of years. I'm an expat of Newfoundland. And the price right now at the pumps is about two oh five, okay, in Saskatoon. Um uh, my observation that I'd like to make is that in, in the two years before the pandemic started, gas prices in this city and in Newfoundland and Saint John's were there was only a five cent spread. Now the spread is twenty cents.
2: Uh, That is not music to my ears, um, I can tell you. Uh, You know, it's a fair question to ask as to why. Now, there are some complicating factors now on this island with Mm -hmm. zero refining for unleaded gasoline or propane or diesel. So that contributes. I get it. We don't Mm -hmm. have any refining capacity, period. So we will inevitably face an increased cost of uh, importation and distribution. I understand. But it's not 20 cents. So. Again, like I spoke with a caller earlier, it'd be nice to know exactly what benchmark numbers your province is using for establishing the price versus how we're establishing the price here. Like, do you have a regulator that establishes the price weekly in, in Saskatchewan?
0: No, no, there isn't.
2: So how is the price? No. So it's a completely unregulated market? No?
0: Yes, that's okay. correct. And the government of Saskatchewan has said that they don't, uh, they're not going to go in that direction. Or because it was brought up in the last few years it was brought up by citizens or what have you and the government said you know, they don't want to regulate the market well it's a free enterprise government that's in power the SAS party is right wing they're not the NDP maybe the NDP would be more likely to do that right? But they're not in government.
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, I think if we had it simply left up to politicians and or the refining refinery companies or the mm-hmm. oil companies, we'd be in a mm-hmm. bit of a pickle, I would think. But here, but here's
0: the, here's the other thing. For, I mean, for years in Newfoundland, um, one of the even going back to the days, and I heard Mister O'Keefe speaking some time ago on the program this morning, and he said. Getting the regulatory board started, and we had many arguments, citizens' meetings, et cetera, ideas and voices being heard. And the often predicament, they were talking about rural gas stations, okay, in Newfoundland. And the price at the pump would be more per liter than, we'll say, it would be in St. John's. And I I take it that that's the case today, correct?
2: not as, not what it once was there used to be no problem to have five cents difference between here clarenville here gander what have you but that has somehow shrunk up again so oh. someone has asked that question in the recent past and i think it's a good question because gone is the gap and here you go I just pull up some numbers uh Avalon Peninsula 226 mm. per liter 228 in central 226 on the west coast okay. 229 on the Northern Peninsula though. that used to be five to ten cents difference
0: oh yeah no it was a, it was a once upon a time in the 90s it was a huge difference yep. from what I from what I can remember but at that time when I moved to Saskatchewan I was living in a little town and I couldn't understand it because it was reverse gas stations in Saskatoon were charging more for gas than they were in the small towns. Yet at that time in Newfoundland the situation was in reverse. So oil companies make up arguments and points, talking points, whenever they're confronted with the truth. That's what I always think anyway. Or they use different marketing strategies completely different throughout the country. Why the prices are what they are, you know I mean I mean, even mean look at the price of groceries. There's forty five grocery stores in the city of Saskatoon. You can't tell me there's more competition between all those multinationals than there be in Newfoundland in Saint John's where you know there's more grocery stores than there was twenty years ago, but not the same level of competition.
2: Oh well you've got a pretty big concentration of grocery stores in the city. We actually do. And now the competitive nature doesn't seem to have much of an impact on food. But interestingly, in the world of the price of gas, competition can indeed be very beneficial depending on where you live. When Costco was in the east end of St. John's, where I live, you had the likelihood of being not only close access to Costco to save a few bucks, but also the other gas stations close by, they'd be more inclined to not charge the maximum allowed because, you know, not only do you buy buy your… Costco's
0: a competitor,
2: yeah. Yeah, right. Right. They put their price, of course, the, the volume. Allows them to do so, but when I get gas, generally speaking, I get something else, whether it be a, a drink or a chocolate bar or a doodad or a lottery ticket or whatever mm-hmm. the case would be. So, mm-hmm. if you're maxed out all the time and you're within a stone's throw of Costco, you probably hurt yourself with the customer volume. But you know, not everyone has the capacity, like Costco, to say oh, that's okay. We can use gas as a loss leader, for instance.
0: Correct. Yeah. But, uh, just getting good, touching on one grocery item and, and uh, laws that. The governing party or the province is planning to push in with the tax on pop, okay? And I can see the opposition's point in in that they were complaining about this and saying, "Well, what other alternatives are there?" And they're right. I mean, a four liter jug of milk in Saskatchewan is five dollars. What's a two liter carton in St. John's? Four bucks.
2: You know, you can get two for maybe around $7, maybe a little bit less. Depends where you shop. And for, curiously enough, the best place to shop for milk, it, where I live, is the Irving Station close by.
0: So it's seven bucks for two liters?
2: Uh, for two two liters. I th- that's around the number. Oh, right? But yeah. anyway. Yeah.
0: Well, it is, it is more expensive, and the legislation doesn't leave people many alternatives for healthier drinks, healthier beverages.
2: Yeah, I suppose. But I mean, the, some of that is based on what you like, not what it costs. <laughs> oh, I, true.
0: I, true. I don't drink pop with my breakfast, of course, but. And I and I don't think anybody else should because we all know what blood sugar does in the long run to your to your system when you get over fifty, right?
2: Yeah, I mean we are and you're over that you're over that you're over
0: that benchmark right now, Pat.
2: I've cleared it, yeah. Uh, we do need a simple glucose, brain power, muscle power, what have you. It's the excess that uh-huh. becomes a, an issue. John, I'm a bit late for the news, but I really appreciate you making yeah. time for Saskatoon. Anything else? No, no, that's fine. Good to have I, you on. I put that
0: out there for people's consideration. It's out there. Okay, buddy. Thanks, Thanks man. again.
2: All the best. Bye-bye. All right, it is time for the newscast. When we come back, plenty of time to speak with you. Don't go away. Your VOCM Mornings with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy, 530 to 9 a.m. weekdays on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Melissa, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. morning.
13: I just caught the tail end of a conversation you were having with a caller with regards to pigeons <laughs> in the city and the feeding of them in residential neighbourhoods. Um, I have a neighbour who's been excessively feeding pigeons for close on a year. Um, I've been dealing with the city about the problem. Um, there's multiple complaints about the neighbour um, with regards to the issue and the city's response time on it. Um, I wish it was better. Uh, It takes a very long time for the city to deal with it. But with regards to, you know, the other side of that coin, um, you know, this property next to us is a rental. My parents own the home we live in. There's myself, my husband, my children, and, you know, my parents living here. And they've lived here for nearly 30 years. And, you know, we've watched... Our neighborhood go from five or six random pigeons to upwards of 60 pigeons, a half a dozen gulls, and some other wild birds. The city actually passed um, some stuff in council back in 2019 to combat rodent problem, which also meant that you couldn't feed wildlife unless it was out of a a proper feeder. And uh, that you couldn't have but two feeders on your property to feed wild birds, which is what they actually consider pigeons. they're, I've learned so much about pigeons in the air it's actually ridiculous what i've learned <laughs> um, I've learned from pest control that removing them from the property makes no difference They're homing birds they will come back unless you can stop the root problem of the feed. They are very intelligent I've owned domestic birds in my past like I know how intelligent they can be, but where there's food they will come and this is become exponential. Our cars are constantly covered in it. Our driveways covered in it. Our house, our windows is covered in it. I live in a heritage area and we actually had a neighbour who had to resort to putting spike strips on their home because they are adjacent to this property on the other side, actually attached to it and had to resort to putting spike strips on their home um, in order to try to combat this problem and it's a, it speaks to an issue with tenants, landlords and the city. Um, you know, my parents pay a lot of taxes as does every other homeowner in this area you know our taxes are considerably high and it's asinine to think that you know we can be held hostage by a renter who feeds these birds despite being told you know of the destruction and the issue and the fact, you know, it, there is no fertilization in their feces. You know, pest control has made it very clear to me that their feces is actually respiratory um, issue causing. You know, once it dries and you're tracking it in and around your home and if there's a substantial amount of it and around your property, it actually can cause serious respiratory problems for yourself and your domestic animals. If you own cats or dogs, you know, it, it brings around rats. It, you know, it absolutely affects the peaceful enjoyment of people. Why it's not considered more of a public nuisance with the city, I, I really can't wrap my brain around, to be honest, because I think if, you know, if you are at a point where you are going to be sighted, and fine for for this in a residential area where there's clear bylaws, then I don't understand why, you know, someone just wouldn't stop. Uh, that's the part that I don't get.
2: Just let me uh, follow up on something you said there. So what would be potentially causing respiratory issues for you and your animals? What exactly so was the, that reference? So the-
13: So, um, after speaking with Terminix a couple of weeks ago, um, we were told that when their feces dries, so when it dries on your steps and, you know, and dries around your driveway and all of these things, and you're tracking it in your home, um, their feces is actually quite toxic because their diet is exceptionally diverse and, and essentially, and this is the words from the guy from Terminix, they are sky rats, they eat anything, you know, um, I'm all for conservation and and doing things right, but I mean feeding birds. I mean, we've we've had neighbors come up in cars and feed these birds loaves of bread. And I'm not talking just throwing out a handful. I mean loaves of bread. And this is not their diet. And they are very caustic birds. Their feces can actually destroy your roof. So we have... um, uh, torch on roof and now we have them nesting on our roof and the roof was just replaced last year and the guys from Terminix said you got a couple of years of them roosting there before you got leaks in your roof again it's it's almost acidic the way that it works um, their feces because of the type of Material that is created through their intestinal system actually creates respiratory issues when they are in excess. So when you had 50 or 60 birds constantly doing this on your property, then you end up, you know, you don't feel it right away. It's long-term, but you find yourself coughing or wheezing. It can actually kill small animals. You know, it it's, it's crazy to think that the number of pigeons that get fed in this area. I mean, I live in an area where it's a problem with multiple people in and around my neighborhood where there are people renting properties and owning properties and feeding these birds in excess I mean, I can go to a pond, I walk around Kent's Pond on a regular basis. If I want to go and feed the ducks, you know, I can feed two to one for pigeons for ducks, you know. They're they're everywhere and There's no real solution. Uh, The city really is... You know, I've been dealing with someone from the city for months, and how many times they've had to take something back to their supervisors with little to no recourse is ridiculous. I I just don't understand it. You know, this is this is a case where feeding four or five of them is one, feeding sixty of them is a, is a whole new problem. And you know, I have kids, and I have a niece and nephew who frequent their home. You know, we can't play in the yard. You can't play in the drive. You know, you can't make chalk in the driveway or do whatever because overhead you're constantly worried that you're going to be crept on by the influx of birds that are being fed 15 to 20 times a day you know, in the driveway. Wow. Uh, I've watched pedestrians try to avoid them walking out into the street last week. I watched a lady, she had to be about 70, actually step down off the sidewalk into traffic to avoid these birds. I've watched cars almost have head-on collisions because there's so many of them in the street. They they try to go around it to avoid the the melee of them flying up into the sky. That I actually watched two cars and one of them came to a screeching halt and had to give the other one a horn. You know, it's... There, there's a whole other host of problems other than conserving birds, and feeding them bread is not a solution.
2: <laughs> well, we're, we're, we're told all the time not to feed the birds. You know, go down to Kitty Vitty and tr- feed the ducks bur- uh, bread. It's not helping. It's actually hurting. Uh, so, Absolutely. Th- you know, I, I haven't experienced this particular concern in my neighbourhood, so it's pretty eye-opening to hear it from your perspective, living through it. Uh, would you like to add anything else b- before we say goodbye this morning, Melissa?
13: No, that's about it. I wish that the city was a little more strict on the byline Uh, aspect of it when it comes to how timely they deal with this issue um you know this issue was brought up by other neighbors to the to the tenant the issue has been brought up by other neighbors to the uh landlord and we've all been met with well you know you want you want us to do something about it sue us that's mostly what you're met with, with the landlord, the tenant believes they're, you know, saving some part of the environment, I'm sure. But it, it's the part where it, it's very, very difficult, um, you know, when it's deliberate, when, when these issues have been brought up to the, by the city to the people involved, and there's still no action, you know, waiting for them to do something when they're when it's very clear that no one's going to do anything until the city does something it's very difficult waiting on that process when you've been nearly a year basically terrorized by 60 pigeons in your driveway <laughs> I love it.
2: I shouldn't be laughing No,
13: you can laugh, Patty Because there's some days That's all I can do about it Is laugh Because I'm telling you It is terrorizing We sit in our living room And they roast up on our chimney And in the silence of our living room All you can hear is the cooing of birds It is enough to drive somebody insane I actually have a whole folder of stuff for the city And it's named Hitchcock Nightmare Because I'm telling you That's what I'm living in
2: (laughs) I'm sorry to hear that But I appreciate making time for the show this morning, Melissa Have a yeah. as peacefully as possible. I just want to give
13: the other side of it. You know, it, it, the city does this because they have these laws in place. You know, if the city gets so far as to have to cite somebody or notify somebody or find somebody for doing this, it's obviously not a case of conservation and it's not a case of just trying to help. You know, it's obviously a problem.
2: I appreciate the time. Thank you very much. Thanks so much, Patty. Okay, Melissa. Bye-bye. Okay,
13: bye-bye.
2: Oh, there you go. Uh, Final break of the morning, final break of the week. Don't go away. Welcome back. Let's go to line number four. Dr. Francis Scully, you're on the air.
14: Oh, good morning. Thank you for taking my call. Pleasure. Yeah, um, and good luck to the lady with the pigeons. I wonder, is there anybody at Bird's Newfoundland who might be able to give her some advice? I don't know.
2: <laughs> well, you know, some of the places that do deal with a lot of birds, so fast food restaurants and otherwise, you always see they got, like, the fake hawks and stuff on the on the roofs of the buildings to try to deter the birds from roosting.
14: Yeah, I don't know. I'm, I'm sure there's somebody, that, like, who knows about birds who might be able to, well, I would hope there's somebody who might be able to help birds. Sounds awful. Yeah. Um, I'm just uh, going back to the um, Bay the Nord issue and I did send you a link in an email but I'm wondering if you have heard of the Keeling curve
2: yeah I've seen the graph before it's uh, measuring atmospheric CO2 I believe
14: yes exactly okay wow you're good (laughs) I only found it the other day all right so uh, so then, uh, on the curve, I'm looking at it right now, it was 257, um, you know, at the time of, of, uh, of, of Christ and until um, the late uh, 18th century, as far as I can see. And then in 1960, it measured 315. And Are you then- talking
2: about parts per million or something?
14: Oh, sorry. Yes, carbon dioxide concentration parts per million. Okay. Exactly. Correct. Yes, yes. And uh, it was three seventy in two thousand, and it's actually gone to four twenty now, uh, which is extremely dangerous. So we have this really, really dangerous level of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere
2: right right now. You know, some of the, the it's also been a, a very difficult discussion or debate, and people are really quite vocal on it, even if you just boil it down to what dirty air means, air pollution means for how many humans it kills every year. Like, even if you didn't talk about anything about a carbon tax or the fossil fuel industry or catalytic converters or smog or acid rain, air pollution kills millions of people every year. If there wasn't even an appetite to do something about that issue, as much as could be done, you can't reverse it all, but you can certainly uh, stave off the frequency with which It's increasing over the last number of decades. Even if we just started with that uh, component of the conversation, we'd probably be a little better off because you know what it is now. It's straight up a a political issue. It's not even policy. It's not even health. It's nothing. It's politics.
14: Well, if we talk about politics, um, there is something, you know, people can uh, dislike them or whatever, but there is something called the United Nations, and there is the International Panel on Climate Change. And um, there is now this Stockholm Convention, uh, our report. And the consensus among hundreds of thousands of scientists and people right across the planet is that at this, in 2022, we must stop new fossil fuel developments that is you know people are begging for this no new ones um and that's why it's not the sierra club who's supposing are people trying to take something away from newfoundlanders and Labradors. climate change is real and food production in africa is down 30 percent famine is occurring everywhere hundreds of millions of people are experiencing in famine right now
2: well we had a serious yeah. drought in western canada last year um just because we're so unfortunately
14: in southeast, <coughs> a, southeast u.s right now right um terrible fires and so on Um, but most of the places where the famines are worst is where there's been a lot of war so afghanistan ethiopia somalia and uh, you know all these countries that um, that have yemen uh, Syria. Which have been devastated already by war and now children are dying in terrible numbers um, and there's terrible climate change and no, no mitigation in under war conditions. Yeah. Uh,
2: simply because of the time we've run out of it for today but maybe you'd like to rejoin us next week to pick up where we left off but I wish you a nice weekend and thank you for this this morning Francis.
14: Thank you very much. And you have a great weekend, Patty. Have Thank a you.
2: great time. Thanks. Bye. Bye bye. All right. We are indeed out of time, but we will pick up this conversation again on Monday morning, right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy weekend. Talk Monday. Bye bye.